You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. Thanks so much for being here this morning. I just want to mention a couple of things. Um, by way of announcement, first, on Thursday night, we're having Christ in the Feast of the Tabernacles here. We still have spaces available, and you will learn at this dinner about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, about God's ways, this really fun feast that pointed to Jesus. You'll learn about the book of John and a whole lot more. In short, you will know the Bible better if you attend on Thursday night. So, look, you early bird gets the worm. We've got a number of uh, seats left, but second service, I don't want to have to make this announcement again in second service. So sign up now online if you would. Then also, on Saturday and Sunday of this week, Grace Connection class, um, we, uh, it, it, it's the membership class here at Grace. If you're just wanting to learn a little bit more about our church, then This is the time to do it. Uh, 15 years and older, if you're a teenager, we'd love for you to be in there for this class. You're not officially a member until you go through the class and you have the interview and all that. So sign up either online or the Next Steps table. Next one is October 21 to 23, uh, 2, I believe, if you cannot make this one. And one last announcement. Next Sunday after the second service, we're going to be having our uh, discovery lunch. So if you're not quite ready for Grace Connection, or even if you are, you've not really met many of the staff and elders, we would love for you to be uh, with us for that. But we need at least five people Uh, to sign up for that other than staff or uh, elder. So if you would, if you're interested in that, please sign up online or again at the Next Steps table. So now, all that's out of the way. Here's a question. I I know you have thought about this question before. If you had the opportunity to know the day that you would die, would you take it? I'm sure the answer is no for almost all of us. I mean, I wouldn't, and maybe you would, but I don't think so. I'm thinking maybe most of us would say, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to know. Here's another one. If you knew the year that the United States of America would lose its place of prominence and power in the world, and we will, it's just a matter of time, hopefully a long time, but... But we don't know. If you knew the absolute year that we would lose our place of prominence in the world affairs, which means that individually and corporately overnight, our economic situation would be far worse than it is now. Uh, We wouldn't be able to travel when and where we want to. We might even be told what kind of a job we would have to have. If you could know the year that's going to happen in our future, distant future, we hope? Would you say yes or would you? I think I'm just taking my chances, you know? Um, But none of this is about chance, is it? None of it really is. Today's message from Daniel 2 is not a prophecy about America, but it does reveal to us the patterns of human history under the direction 
of a sovereign God, a God who knows all, and as we will see, a God who directs all. It begins with King Nebuchadnezzar's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad dream. There's a lot of ground to cover in Daniel 2, and the goal is to read all of the text. The application is in the detail, so we're going to need to pause along the way. Notice throughout the text that the trajectory of earthly kingdoms is from high to low. It's always moving downward, but the trajectory of the kingdom of God is the opposite direction. It's always moving up and filling the earth. Either appropriately or oddly enough, the way to the kingdom of God and to rise is to first humble ourselves. Our initial reading will be from verses 19 to 23 near the middle of the chapter where Daniel is praising God for revealing Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation to him. This is the heart of the passage not the interpretation of the dream. This is the theological center of Daniel chapter 2. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Daniel 2, verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed after Daniel and his friends had prayed for God to do that. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. Wow, these are four powerful verses found in the middle of the chapter that is interesting, is both interesting and troubling. But how did we get here? Let's go back to the beginning where we find Daniel and his friends in big trouble near the end of their three-year training. Just want to say one thing about dates. The way Babylonians dated uh, a king's rule and the way the Hebrews Uh, dated it were different. So, for instance, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar came to power, as far as the Hebrews were concerned, the Jews were concerned, this was the first year of his power. But the Babylonians dated it this way. They would say, no, the first, his his accession, accession to the throne, and then his first several months are not counted. His first year begins somewhere down here. So, in other words, when Daniel and his friends are in their three years of training. They could have completed it by what the Babylonians would call the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's 
rain. And if that's confusing, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just know that there is no contradiction between chapters 1 and 2. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Say that three times fast. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Just, just a note to say that even though Daniel and his friends knew all about these black arts that these guys um, practiced because they had to be trained in them in the school, in the University of Babylon, uh, they had absolutely nothing to do and with those black arts. And they were never considered to be the class of sorcerers. They were considered wise men. It'd be like our counselor to the president of the United States, something like that. So, but, but, but Daniel, in fact, is going to be elevated as chief prefect over this class, but he never becomes a member of the guild. Verse 3. And the king said to him, I had a dream and my spirit to them, I'm sorry, not to Daniel, but to all the wise, the the sorcerers and and their, their ilk. I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servant the dream and we will show the interpretation. (laughs) Yes, do, do show us that. And it's the way of it, right? The king would say, I had this dream. What does it mean? But here, uh, there's more going on. Now, you need to know, again, just by way of understanding what's going on, that Daniel switches from Hebrew language to Aramaic in verse 4. And he's going to continue that all the way through the end of Daniel chapter 7. Possibly because Aramaic was the language of the court And so he was dealing in matters of the court. These are all court tales that you'll find through this section of uh, the book of Daniel. And maybe they had a little bit more of a universal significance than being primarily for the benefit of God's people. Whether Nebuchadnezzar remembered his dream or if it was just on the threshold of his consciousness, he knew that the dream concerned him and he... To understand it was urgent. While he was desperate to know the message of the dream, what the message of the dream implied for his future, it was too important for him to receive a casual interpretation. I mean, anybody could say that, right? If I told you my dream and I said, what do you think it means? And you're like, hey, I'm not. And I said, no, no, really, really. What do you think it means? You'd say, well, okay. And you'd start coming up with, anybody can do that. But Nebuchadnezzar said, that won't do for me. I need to know that you know what you're talking about. I need for you to hear from heaven, really. So so here's the way to prove it. Tell me what the dream was, and then I'll listen to your interpretation. Verse 5. The king answered, And said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will have credit cards taken from you and a couple of other bad. No, 
You shall be torn from limb, from, torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Look, this is only the first time we're going to see just how brutal this man was. And Nebuchadnezzar was symbolic of this sort of hubris and brutality for the Babylonian Empire. And anytime you see Babylon in Scripture, think of this. Think of Nebuchadnezzar right here at this moment. This is how it was with King Neb. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. They absolutely had one now. If you just tell them that. But the king answered and said, I know with certainty you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until <coughs> the times change. <coughs> Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, do you see what's going on here? What, what they're admitting by saying all of this? They're saying... You, you would have to think that the gods actually care about what's going on here. And in fact, to care at that level, they would have to dwell here with us. And that's impossible. In the spirit of the season, as Lee Corso would say, not so fast, my friend. Well, the enchanters spoke better than they knew in verse 11. A two-word description of this entire episode from the sorcerers and the Chaldeans in both Hebrew and Aramaic translated into English is, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. Dale Ralph Davis, former professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi has had, had this to say about the failure of the spiritual advisors that Nebuchadnezzar relied on. And, and, and I want you to think about this as we read this. This is where people are. It feels like the culture has the upper hand. They're screaming and pointing fingers. But this is the truth. Paganism is nothing but a religious cul-de-sac. It can give no sure word from outside. By contrast then, and in light of the whole chapter, Daniel is saying that life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. 
He is telling exiled Israel that there is no need to be awed by by paganism, despite its trappings and splendor, for it is nothing but empty and dark. Close quote. This quote and another that I'll share a little bit later in the message will be available in your home group notes this week. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied... With panic and frustration, and this is not fair, how can you do this? No, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, the, the captain of the king's guard, chief executioner, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's response is a good one for us. Patience rather than panic. Verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Time and again, Daniel's response to trouble is prayer. As good a model as Daniel is for us, if your thought is to make this fascinating book and story about Daniel himself, he will not let it happen. He's constantly saying, it's not me. It's the God that I worship, the God of heaven, Yahweh, my God. In addition to his prayer for wisdom, he pauses to give thanks for God. So what is your pattern? It's very easy to fall into the pattern of praying earnestly when we've got a crisis or we've got something that needs addressing right now. And then when God grants the the, the prayer of our hearts, we just thank in passing. Thank you, Lord. Now time to get on about it. Or don't even thank him at all. The discipline of gratitude for answered prayer reminds us that God is sovereign over all things. And that if he does not reveal himself to us, we cannot know him or his will. And it also reminds us that he will lead us in our interactions with others. Maybe especially when we're in trouble. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. 
Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretations? So even though Daniel was not in a hurry, Arioch was. And he was also in a hurry to take credit for finding Daniel to give the interpretation of the dream. This happens a lot in life, doesn't it? People take credit for things, something that was our idea, um, our understanding. It's, it's okay. God knows about all that and all glory goes to him anyway. As Daniel acknowledges. Verse 26. Then the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known? Oh, wait a minute. I've already read that. Verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be <coughs> in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would come after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your own mind. Oh my goodness, we need Daniel, right? Because how many times do we say, uh, if somebody could just help me to know the thoughts of my own mind, I would really be <laughs> appreciative of that. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Can you imagine if that was your dream? And somebody's standing right before you telling you that's what you dreamed. There's no way that person could know unless it had been revealed to them. A few things to note here. As the statue goes from top, tip to toe, as uh, Allison would say. As, as the statue goes from the head down to the feet. The materials lessen in value but strengthen in power. And by the time you get to the legs of iron, you find a powerful empire, because that's what we're dealing with here, empires, that crushes its opponents. The mixture at the bottom of the statue indicates a weakening from within that cannot hold. 
Notice that no matter the strength of human kingdoms, ultimately there is a divine kingdom made without human ingenuity and might that breaks the kingdoms of this earth into pieces. And while many assume that the stone is only referring to the kingdom and not the Messiah, how do you separate the two? Jesus, not of this earth, comes to destroy earthly kingdoms and to set up his perfect rule. Verse 35. Then the iron, the the clay, the bronze, the silver, and all the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing, threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, this is what we might call, again, I think this is the proper translation, smashing to smithereens. Notice that while the statue goes down in value, the stone becomes larger and larger and fills the whole earth, just as the kingdom will do when Jesus returns. For the time being, the kingdom is already in operation, but God works through earthly kingdoms. The time will come when that's no longer necessary because the kingdom of God will be here and everything else will be done away with. Now, as you're thinking about understanding how scripture works, it is hard to overestimate, almost impossible to overestimate the importance of the book of Daniel when thinking about the New Testament teaching on the kingdom of God by John the Baptist and Jesus especially. I think almost every year when I read through the Bible, which I'm going to start encouraging you to do before too long in the new year, get, get ready for that. But every year going through the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's, I read a verse and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought that Jesus just said that. But Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture. The New Testament is nothing more than the Old Testament written, rewritten in view of the cross. It's all here in the Old Testament telling us what will be. This understanding that the kingdom of God has been the plan all along gives us much hope. No matter what you are facing, especially with those who are opposed to your faith, you are on the right trajectory if you're walking with Jesus. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking that earlier when Daniel said, thank you for revealing this to us, he's, he's including his friends who were praying with him. Now Daniel is speaking in a royal we. It's a deferential we in front of the king. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretations. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Notice Right off the bat, Daniel's saying, it's not your doings. God has given this to you. 
And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes... Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay. So shall the kingdom be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay. So they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not... Hold together, and as iron does not mix with clay, or just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, in the days of those kings, in this fourth empire, we would say, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces. All these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The primary focus of Daniel 2 is a sovereign God who sets up one king and pulls down another. And who will ultimately bring the full kingdom of God in which Jesus will rule for the good of his people. And this God is worth praising every day in every circumstance. As for the statue, it's prophecy. It's important. It's a God who can tell the future ahead of time. Look, one of the reasons that biblical scholars, maybe so-called biblical scholars, want to say that the prophecies from Isaiah in Babylon and the prophecy about Cyrus being the one to free the people um, and, and the prophecies of Daniel were written at a much later date. Is so that because they say, well, no one can really tell the future. If God can't tell this future, I'm doing something else with my life. He can do it. He, he said, this is what it's going to be. So here's the best conservative evangelical interpretation of what the statue symbolizes. The gold stands for the Babylonian Empire. The silver represents the Persian Empire, which absorbed the Medes. The bronze statue, I think I I jumped ahead, Kyle. Uh, The bronze statue um, represents the Greek Empire in the philosophy 
we've gone dark. Second coming is at any moment now. <laughs> the, the, the bronze <clears throat> portion represents the Greek empire, which had great influence, including the philosophies that shaped the Western world and the language into which the New Testament was written. The iron shows the power of Roman might and influence, but it's later mixed with clay, indicating the fragility of this human kingdom, powerful as it was, but it's no match for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in fact, begins to rise when, while the earthly kingdoms still rule. In other words, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God at his first advent, and he'll return to the claim, uh, to ret- he will return to claim his throne. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 46, gets the message, sort of. Then, <clears throat> verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the kingdom or the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefects prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So God exalted Daniel, who would have quite an influence on world affairs for 70 years as a prisoner and a slave. That's amazing. What about Nebuchadnezzar? He was not converted in chapter 2, although we see him getting closer over the next two chapters to yielding to Yahweh as we go along. At this point, Andrew Steinman's assessment seems pretty spot on. Quote, Though the messianic overtones of Daniel's interpretation are clear, they are lost on Nebuchadnezzar, who has no interest in the theological nuances of what he considers to be the faith of a third-rate people whom he has subjugated. You see this, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of all kingdoms. Daniel was able to help him out in a spot, but he is the man. Okay, he acknowledges, man, this God is amazing. Now, what's, what's next? Oh, yeah, next day we're going to build a statue, and if you don't worship it, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, okay, that's right with Daniel, but let's don't get carried away here. Though in the end, Steinman continues, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges Daniel, God, God as Daniel's God as God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. He does not understand the full implications of the dream, either in its messianic message or its implied monotheism. 
Your God is God of gods. In other words, he's just the, maybe the best God among all the gods. In fact, none of us understands anything about the kingdom of God apart from the Holy Spirit revealing to us through God's word that we need Jesus if we're to be right with God. So while the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the kings of the earth, kingdoms of the earth have a trajectory of going down and the kingdom of God has a trajectory of going up and out, when it comes to our relationship with God, we're constantly trying to climb up and he's saying, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it any more than the people at Babel were able to build that tower to the heavens. The only way you have hope is if I come to you. People are hungry for the message of hope. We've been at this incredibly woke culture long enough that people are beginning to see it just isn't all I thought it was. They need to know that there's a God in heaven who loved them enough to do something about their sin. To send Jesus to die for them. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, call out and say, Lord, my, my ways aren't working. I give my life to you. I'm a mess. <clears throat> I, I confess my sins. My only hope is Jesus. And in that moment, you become a part of this great kingdom of God that is growing and will be unlike anything anybody imagined. When Jesus comes back, all this is done. Well, the telling of this tale has taken all of our time. And while it would be nice to have three to five points of application, want us to close our time with words of comfort, fitting words, words of delight for those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You, you can't. We're not smart enough to figure God out. He has to reveal himself to us, and he does so through his word. And this word, everywhere, is the preaching of the cross. God taking the punishment that we deserved, that we had to take because of his holiness and our sinfulness. He did it in our place. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly 
of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, and we could say the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, don't look here or there for the kingdom, for the kingdom is among you. What he was saying was the kingdom is standing in front of you. I am the kingdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Be encouraged. If you are following Jesus, you're heading in the right direction, no matter what anyone else says, or no matter what the circumstances try to whisper or shout to you. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Would you stand together, please? Father. Our hearts are troubled. Surely many of us walked in with troubles this morning. That's one of the reasons you've called us to come together on Sunday mornings. Because now our hearts are encouraged. We know that we serve a God who is in charge of every single thing. And oddly enough, even as the culture and the society moves in the wrong direction, <laughs> we're going in the other direction with you. It doesn't mean it's not going to be troubles, just like Daniel and his friends. Every chapter begins with trouble almost. You don't always deliver us out of all of our troubles. But you do stand with us all the way to the end. And you are preparing for us a day. A day that we long to be sooner than later rather than later. Lord, we long to be with you when your kingdom has fully come. And Jesus rules with a rod of iron over his enemies, but with a heart of deep love and compassion and mercy and patience for God's people. We give thanks. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.
For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.